Welcome to EU Watchdog Radio. I'm Paul Creaney from Counterbalance, a non-profit organisation holding European public finance in Europe to account. The European Union likes to present itself as a benevolent global force concerned with the food, climate, debt and other crises affecting countries across the world. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen presented the EU Global Gateway as a response to these crises in December 2021. In theory, this new strategy will support infrastructure projects worldwide which enhance global connectivity. The reality could be very different. The Global Gateway itself may be little more than a PR exercise. Worse still, it could be an excuse to hand precious development money over to the private sector. The lack of transparency around the gateway makes it impossible to know for sure. The Global Gateway also risks using development funds to support the EU's geopolitical goals, rather than fighting poverty. The strategy is frequently pitched as an alternative to China's Belt and Road Initiative, based on so-called European values, yet these claims are yet to be substantively backed up. The Commission may be subjugating international development for real policy. In today's episode of EU Watchdog Radio, we will speak with Fawa Sial, Senior Policy Officer for Development Finance at the European Network on Debt and Development. Fawa will explain what exactly the Global Gateway is, what the Commission claims it is for, and whether these claims stand up to scrutiny. We will also speak to a member of a community in Nepal directly affected by an infrastructure project financed by the European Investment Bank, one of the Commission's main partners in rolling out the gateway. So thank you for joining us today, Fawa, and for being uh, able to talk about and explaining to our uh, listeners about the EU Global Gateway. And for uh, historical context, uh, in December 2021, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen launched the EU Global Gateway with much fanfare. What exactly is the gateway and what did von der Leyen claim it was for? And also, how much does geopolitics play a role in the gateway? Hello, hi, and um, thanks for having me. So the Global Gateway uh, is the European Union strategy to support infrastructure projects across the world with a view to enhance connectivity. It's been described by the EU as a flagship project focusing on five sectors, and they include digital, climate and clean energy, transport, health, education and research. The gateway is presented by the, e- the European Commission as the EU's response to the multiple crises that the Balkans, EU's neighborhood and developing countries currently face. So energy, food, climate and debt crisis. Uh, as such, it is a clear EU attempt to play a greater role in international development. However, foreign policy and geopolitical competition are inherently embedded in the rationale for the Global Gateway. Naming recipient countries as partners, the Commission explicitly calls the Gateway a positive offer. 
that aims to forge links and not create dependency. And this is clearly hinting at um, criticism of China's Belt and Road Infrastructure Initiative, the BRI. But in fact, in the EU's 2021 State of Union speech, uh, President Ursula von der Leyen explicitly also mentioned the role of European financing in the context of the EU Indo-Pacific strategy. Um, she said, and I quote, it does not make sense for Europe to build a perfect road between a Chinese-owned copper mine and a Chinese-owned harbor. So the geopolitics of the global gateway rely on the promise of financing an initiative that is qualitatively superior to the Chinese-led initiative. And uh, the, the gateway's added value is set to rest on the delivery of projects that are rooted in democratic values, operating through um, high standards and conforming to the principles of good governance uh, and transparency. Um, at the same time, it's important to mention that the gateway is also presented as a fiscal stimulus for the EU. The official document on the gateway states that one aim is to create jobs in Europe, through trade opportunities for the EU economy. So it's an approximately 38 million jobs which are dependent on international trade. Um, and saying that a major issue uh, that is important to emphasize is um, the problematic nature of the gateway's organizational setup, which is that the process so far lacks transparency um, and lacks meaningful participation in the inclusion of um, a range of stakeholders, uh, I, and, and I think it's 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 clear to mention that the Gateway is a commission-led project uh, in which the role of the European Parliament and EU member states uh, remains clear, unclear as of yet. So, Bloodline has promised um, that the Gateway will achieve uh, quite a lot, and it, and it will be a, a central part of uh, the Commission's. Um, international uh, developments and um, uh, foreign policy strategy. Um, yet despite that, um, is any new money being actually invested in the Global Gateway? Or is it mainly, as we see in uh, with other Commission policies, a rebranding exercise uh, by the Commission? Yeah, that is actually a key question. Um, so the Gateway's very ambitious goal of um, connectivity, creating jobs within the EU, um, is actually based on the Commission's plan to mobilize up to 300 billion euros between 2021 and 2027 in infrastructure investments. Uh, but there are two main and connected problems with this figure. First of all, very simply, there is no new money. And second, the figure is based on a hypothetical mobilization of finances, which use um, an unreliable and non-transparent methodology. Uh, and coming back now to the first point, the sum of 300 billion euros committed for the gateway actually draws on tools that have already been adopted as part of EU's 2021-27 budget. In fact, the gateway is to be delivered through the so-called Team Europe Initiative or Team Europe Approach, which brings together the EU, its member states and their financial and development institutions such as the EIB, the European Investment Bank, and the EBRD, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. So clearly this points towards a rebranding of development funds, um, as you were mentioning. 
The second point um, is on the hypothetical mobilization of financing, and it's actually based on this problematic concept of leveraging. Leveraging assumes that public money is able to mobilize private investment for specific projects and activities. So the gateway's targeted mobilization amount of 300 billion euros is roughly based on a ballpark leverage ratio of 10. This means that for every one euro of public finance, 10 euros will be mobilized in private finance. This, however, is ambiguous at best. Using public finances to leverage private investment is not based on any agreed methodology for estimated leverage ratios, which has actually led to different institutions calculating different ratios for the same sum of investment. Uh, it is also accompanied by problems such as double counting, when some development finance institutions fail to make a distinction between public and private funds. And finally, there is also the question of who is leveraging who, because it could be that there is a large private investment actually leveraging a small amount of public support, which in fact raises the question of whether the subsidy was actually needed or the investment would have happened anyway. So leverage ratio actually stems from the experience of the existent European Fund for Sustainable Development uh, Plus, which builds um, on the financial pillar of the 2017 EU external plan. But a fund that is uh, still in early days and has raised a lot of questions and criticism, and the European Court of Auditors um, uh, calls it to be surrounded by lots of hopes and expectations, uh, but not so much reality. So just to give you an example um, about this problem of finances, um, the EU's commitment of 150 billion for euros for an EU Africa investment package was announced as part of the gateway in February 2022 uh, at the EU Africa summit. Um, and actually, this was uh, criticized because there was very little evidence of this money. In fact, it was reported as a case of uh, magical engineering by DevEx, uh, a magazine which specialized on reporting on international development. So the funding and the financing of the gateway is really in the air, and there is um, a lot of questions and, uh, well, unanswered, quest un unanswered evidence on that front. It seems corporate interests are also represented in the gateway alongside meeting international development objectives. How were European business interests included? Um, I guess I think the answer to that is um, that we have to see the gateway has been, in fact, designed to serve a set of very different ambitions, uh, which have actually been reduced to the narrative of mutual benefits. On the one hand, the EU aims to respond to the economic needs of recipient countries by supporting their incorporation in global value chains, mainly through the export of raw materials. On the other hand, doing so will also help the EU's own domestic market by creating jobs, as I mentioned earlier. However, this does not necessarily mean contribution towards a sustainable socioeconomic development path in developing countries. Um, so this narrative around mutual benefits now driving the EU's developmental role is quite problematic. In addition, there is 
other um, developments uh, or initiatives in the EU. So there is a new proposal of establish an EU export credit facility. Uh, just to mention what this is to mention what an EU export credit facility, uh, an export credit facility is. It's a specialist, uh, usually government-backed financial institution that offers financing for domestic companies' export. Um, and the EU countries already have uh, separate um, export credit agencies. And this is a proposal for a EU or a combined uh, export credit facility. Uh, and it is accompanied, it seems to be accompanied by motivations for enhancing and securing market opportunities for EU businesses. Although the facility, its operations and governance structures are still under consideration, the Commission has clearly stated that the facility would help ensure a more level playing field for EU businesses and third country markets where they increasingly have to compete with foreign competitors that receive large support from their governments. So the idea of EU export credit facility has been in the making for some time, it was based on a white paper written in 2021 by the EU Export Finance Lab Think Tank. Uh, this is an informational think tank which participates um, and participants um, are from 18 national export credit agencies, uh, their guardian authorities being in the EU member states. And this paper called for a coordinated provision of public finance to EU companies and focused on the convergence between international development institutions and export credit agencies, which are set to provide government-backed loans, guarantees, credit and insurance companies. So at the same time, the gateway is also based on a development agenda focused on lowering the risk of private investors for when they operate in developing countries. This happens through the activity of development finance institutions, which despite having a specific development mandate, may inadvertently be promoting national economic interests as they support the activity of private sector companies. So the increasing push towards complementing the role of development finance institutions, DFIs on the one hand, and the creation of an EU export credit facility um, under the gateway, in fact, increases the likelihood that the mandate of the institutions will be reoriented to serve geopolitical and economic interests over any developmental priorities. So concerns regarding tide aid, that is official development assistance, or ODA, that is restricted to the procurement of goods and services from the country providing that aid, um, have recently aid, uh, recently increased with the changes of um, current rules that govern uh, aid. Uh, which allow for the reporting of private sector instruments. Whilst development assistance cannot be explicitly used to subsidize trade through export credits, it's important to emphasize that the creation of an environment that facilitates trade through indirect aspects of development assistance can ultimately lead to an increase in commercially motivated aid. And this has to be, well, uh, avoided, but also explained um, how it, 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 will, it will not happen under the Gateway. So far, we've discussed how the Global Gateway could benefit private profits and commercial interests over development goals such as eradicating poverty. We'll now discuss the Global Gateway's human rights implications. The Marshangdi Corridor is an electricity transmission line financed by the European Investment Bank one of the European Commission's main partners in rolling out the Global Gateway. 
and it was built to transport electricity towards Kathmandu and India. The corridor passes over homes, land, forest and community spaces, with local people speaking out about the human rights violations they are facing due to the transmission line construction. We will now speak to an indigenous people's leader from Gurmu village in Namjoon district, Nepal. They wish to remain anonymous to avoid facing the reprisals which people who have spoken out against the corridor have faced. Thank you for taking the time today to speak with EU Watchdog Radio. When did you first hear about plans to build the electricity transmission line? Regarding the 220 kV electricity transmission line, construction in Marsangdi Corridor by the Nepal Electricity Authority with an investment of the European Investment Bank, I was aware about it on 2017 October after hearing about it from the lawyer team of Lawyers Association for Human Rights of Nepalese Indigenous People, or LAHURNIP, and the FPIC and Right Forum representative. What has happened to you since the plans were announced? After the announcement of construction of this project, I was scared as well as worried. Construction of this project is likely to acquire lands and houses of myself as well as some of the other neighbors in our community. Hence, I am worried if the social, economic and cultural environment of indigenous as well as non-indigenous communities would be disrupted. Also, electricity transmission lines of this sort are more likely to create a direct adverse impact physically and environmentally to the peoples and animals. Because of the leakage of the existing transmission lines, many people have been injured from electric shocks. Also, we have witnessed many animals die from the same causes. Hence, this project is more likely to create even more adverse impact for a long term. How have the authorities responded to the community's complaints? After the complaints were lodged by the community, related officials approached the community and threatened them by saying that this project is a national pride project and it has to be constructed at any cost. People who protest against this project are anti-development and the authorities will end up constructing it by mobilizing police administration and with the use of force. In some places, communities are also being forced as well as coerced by force. At some time, the project tried to move forward forcefully by luring and saying that they will provide us appropriate reparation and compensation as well as give employment to the affected members. Lately, it is within our information that the Nepal Electricity Authority has issued a notice and hence appealed in order to prepare an environment of a dialogue with community and stakeholders solve the problem and support the project. However, there is no clearer perspective on the agenda and matters of the dialogue. So the European Investment Bank's financing of the Marshyangdi Electricity Transmission Corridor in Nepal shows how weak the checks against human rights violations in development projects funded by European institutions can be. Could the EU Global Gateway make, sh- make such violations more likely in the future? 
Um, yes, as you heard, without effective checks and balances, the financing from international development finance institutions can lead to devastating impacts for local communities. So therefore, there is a strong need to strengthen the, the human rights uh, impacts of EU's existing financial institutions. However, um, the gateway is going in a different direction. Under the gateway, emerging of geopolitical and commercial interests with development assistance means a strong push for ensuring profitability of the private sector, which in fact increases the likelihood that this comes at the expense of development efforts and also comes at huge costs to those who are most vulnerable um, uh, and most um, you know, uh, marginalized in developing countries. Uh, we have and we continue to see a lot of reporting on human rights violation against uh, DFIs, um, uh, including European investment banks, as well as all other multilateral uh, institutions. And the danger of this agenda is that this could undermine the notion of development ad additionality. Uh, development additionality has to be present in the operations of public institutions, which have a public uh, or developmental mandate. Uh, and this quest for profit actually stands in contradiction with the idea of uh, development additionality. Okay, and um, before our uh, final question, could you just explain uh, uh, what the development additionality is for uh, any listeners who may not be familiar with the, uh, the concept? Yes. Um, so development additionality is a concept which is actually um, present at the heart of most uh, public finances and uh, now used to justify the leveraging of um, private investments, which is that for every investment uh, or every mobilization of private finance, there has to be proof that there is a developmental impact. Um, and as you can imagine, um, the, the measuring of that developed impact, how it is achieved and how much private investment actually leads to uh, the so-called development impact are very vague and arbitrary terms. But what is clear is that it stands in clear contradiction with a quest for profitability and actually ends up in many cases, including the Nepal case, um, undermining the interest of the very people that it is meant to um, actually protect my thanks for clarifying so it's uh, to make sure that uh, yeah private money that is leveraged um, for development reasons actually goes to development first rather than to uh, the profits of those uh, companies kind of uh, involved in the investment uh, it, as a very simple kind of uh, overview yeah yeah that's right yeah, uh, thanks very much. And, well, we've discussed many uh, structural flaws with the EU Global Gateway and many risks of what, uh, many risks of negative effects that the Gateway could have on uh, uh, people receiving uh, or near development projects which are funded by it or who may be affected uh, by Global Gateway projects across the world. Uh, in conclusion, uh, what must the Global Gateway do to genuinely help communities in the Global South? Thanks. That's, uh, that's um, I guess we move towards uh, policy and what uh, can, what can uh, the Gateway look like if it is actually in the interest of developing countries. So we have to go back to the idea that actually the 
gateways presented as a positive offer to partner countries. Uh, and the first um, point is that to do so, there has to be evidence of real partnership. At the moment, the role of recipient countries remains unclear. Internal governance model of the gateway spells out different stakeholders, including EU delegations, member states, and a new business advisory group. The Commission aims to explicitly undertake an awareness-raising campaign in recipient countries to explain the global gateway approach, but that is not enough. Investment decisions in recipient countries cannot simply be a business, bureaucratic, or political decision that speak to the interests of the EU, the private sector, and recipient country elites. It has to be a long-term strategy to enhance public finance and public services, um, and it has to address uh, the needs of the communities itself, as we heard in the Nepal case. Uh, moreover, it also requires meaningful investigation into the nature and goal of financing. Greening of infrastructure, delivery of green tech solutions to recipient countries uh, needs careful consideration and is often lost in the hype of buzzwords like sustainability. The promotion of expensive infrastructure to developing countries for the purposes of exporting renewable energy to Europe could actually contribute to developing countries' indebtedness as well as distorting prices in domestic energy markets. As the global economy moves towards global re recession, geopolitical competition will also have be unsustainable unless it responds to the reality of developing countries and especially the question of debt. So, in short, three major issues require policy change in the gateway. First, the gateway should be guided by a clear development rationale to make a meaningful contribution towards poverty reduction and climate change. And the current focus on de-risking private investments should not be an objective of this initiative. The second, the Commission should ensure greater transparency of decision-making process and structure of the gateway. It should actually clearly define the role of member states, publicly disclose the complete list of projects which is still not available, as well as their social and environmental impact assessment, the mandate and activity of the proposed new credit facility, export credit facility, and the mandate as well as the composition of the new business advisory group. Third, the model of the gateway needs to be reviewed to ensure democratic ownership of development strategies and meaningful participation both in partner countries and in Europe, including uh, the European Parliament as well as the civil society. So to sum up, uh, at this time of multiple crises, the Gateway Initiative is not reflective of, of the EU's role as a credible and relevant development partner for recipient countries. Okay, thank you very much to, uh, for speaking to us today, Fawa, and uh, take care. Thanks a lot. Thank you. We've now reached the end of today's podcast. Thank you for listening. Thanks also to Mark Broner and Jan Callewert for their technical assistance. If you want to learn more about Counterbalance's work, check out our website and social media channels and subscribe to our newsletter. Stay tuned and stay safe.